You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. Welcome to Domecast. I'm Jordan Schrader, your host this week, and with me are Colin Campbell, Andy Spey, Lauren Horsch, and Will Doran. This week, uh, we had more developments in the case involving House member Dwayne Hall and the sexual misconduct accusations against him, an ethics complaint against Speaker of the House Tim Moore, and possible developments in the the case involving the uh, Atlantic Coast Pipeline Fund and Roy Cooper. Um, Will, why don't you start us off with the complaint against Tim Moore? There's a few different things uh, alleged in this, but first of all, um, who is uh, who is submitting this? Um, where is this coming from? Right. So on Monday, we heard from a Washington D.C.-based uh, government watchdog group, the Campaign for Accountability, um, that said that they were filing an ethics complaint into House Speaker Tim Moore. Uh, I'm sure all of our listeners know that he is a Republican from Cleveland County. Um, but what they might not know, what we didn't know, was that he. Uh, used to own an old shuttered chicken plant in Chatham County. It was the Townsend's plant in Siler City. It was one of the biggest employers in that area. It really hurt the local economy when it shut down in 2011. Um, Moore and a company that he is the co-owner of uh, bought the plant in 2013 uh, for pretty cheap, around $85,000, according to this complaint, and three years later sold it for a 550% markup on it. And this complaint says that there are basically two ethics issues that they want state regulators to look into. Uh, You know, these watchdog people aren't saying we have definite proof that he definitely did these things. They're just saying, hey, this, there's some things here that look fishy and we want the state to look into it. So, uh, we'll see how that goes. Uh, the state law is that you know these sorts of complaints are confidential, at least until they reach a conclusion. So we won't even know if the state is looking into this unless something does happen. Um, but basically what it boils down to is uh, one of the complaints is that uh, Speaker Moore used his political power to influence regulators at the Department of Environmental Quality to go easy on the company with uh, some pollution violations that were at the plant regarding uh, underground fuel storage tanks. Uh, They were old and corroded and apparently had prompted some neighbors to complain of terrible smells. And uh, DEQ told them, hey, you know, you need to take care of these, you know, get them closed down. And um, there were a couple things. Uh, One uh, more was late in uh, registering the tanks, and DEQ waived a uh, $5,800 late fee that he owed um, and also later gave him some extensions that he had requested, um, even though the inspector uh, who was leading the case uh, told Moore that she didn't think that it would be very likely for him to get the extensions because basically the solutions that he was proposing and why he said he needed the extensions, she said that wasn't a valid way to handle the problems, but he got the extensions anyways. Uh, Moore denies all of this. He says nothing improper happened. Um, and we should note that, you know, at this time, uh, DQ was led by uh, Donald Vandervart, who was a McCrory appointee who was very vocal about, you know, making the agency uh, customer friendly, uh, basically trying to help out all business owners uh, with this sort of thing. So it remains unclear if, you know, Tim Moore did get special treatment on this or if waivers of late fees, you know, extensions, things like that were kind of 
regular practice in that more customer-friendly mindset that DEQ was taking on at the time. And there is some talk in the records that the this group got um, that, at least on the face of it, uh, indicates that they were saying, treat him like you would treat anybody else. Yeah, yeah. This group, uh, you know, props to them for their transparency. They, uh, in addition to their complaint, they also released all of the internal emails that they had gotten from DEQ. And in one of those emails, uh, Tom Reeder, who's a former assistant secretary who had been appointed by McCrory, uh, tells the inspector and her supervisors, yeah, uh, we, you know, treat more like anybody else. And he also tells her, uh, you don't need to have the legislative uh, liaisons that DEQ employs to be involved in any calls with him. Just do it normally. Uh, the complaint says, you know, well, they said to do it normally, but it appears that he wasn't treated normally. And uh, the complaint also claims that there appear to be some missing documents that DEQ claims don't exist. The watchdog group calls that dubious. Uh, they say that, you know, these documents are referenced by a DEQ employee, and DEQ's explanation is apparently that she wasn't referencing things that actually exist, just things that might exist in the future and that never were created. So there's kind of some confusion over that. We'll see uh, where that all goes. Um, this is obviously all still developing this week. And uh, Moore was sort of acting as the point person for this company. Um, it, I don't know if that's uh, – I mean, he, he in his private practice, he's a lawyer, right? Um, yeah, yeah, he's got a few side businesses. Um, this is one of them. Uh, it's a company. It's called Southeast Land Holdings that he co-owns with a couple from South Carolina. Um, so it could be that he was acting as the point person just because he lives in the state and they don't. It could be that he was acting as the point person because you know he has more political cachet than they do. Um, we don't know, um, but uh, according to his financial disclosure forms, he owned about. 25% of this property through the company. Um, and they made around a half a million dollar profit when they sold it. So Yeah, and as you say, five, more than 500% uh, profit. So um, there was a deal that almost came together in 2014 for them to sell this land uh, and, get, and the buyer would get a um, grant uh, funded with taxpayer money, um, but that fell apart, right? Yeah, that's the other part of this complaint, um, is that Moore may have improperly influenced the creation or the approval of a couple of taxpayer-funded grants that were associated with this. Uh, the one grant that you mentioned that fell through uh, was for $750,000 in public money that would have uh, gone to a group of investors who wanted to buy the plant, and that would have just been too directly buy the plant. Uh, that fell through, according to this complaint, after local officials in Siler City uh, fought against it. Um, the complaint doesn't say why they didn't like it, um, and I'm, I'm not sure why they shot it down, but they did. And uh, later it was sold in 2016 uh, to a different group uh, or company called Mount Air Farms that is operating the plant right now as we speak. And um, they bought it, um, and they didn't get any uh, taxpayer money directly to buy it, but they later benefited from about $4 million in uh, tax incentives and in uh you know, money to uh, hook up a sewer system. And some of that was approved by local officials, but some of that was approved by a state group uh, that more appointed some of the members on that group. Uh, so uh, this complaint, you know, wants you know, a closer look at his involvement in that grant. Um, again, should note, more very quickly came out and said, 
you know, all these things with DEQ about pressuring them. He never did that. It's completely false. It's just a politically motivated hit on him in this election year. We've got, I asked him to also explain the grant situation and never heard back anything on that. Um, so uh, we'll see. Like I said, this is all still developing. I'm sure there's plenty more reporting uh, to be done on it uh, as it unfolds. Okay. All right, well, environmental issues also um, figure into the other uh, issue that you wrote about this week related to um, ethics, and that is uh, continued, um, uh, basically the legislature continued to talk about the Atlantic Coast Pipeline Fund um, that Governor Roy Cooper negotiated um, and announced on the same day that the pipeline got a key permit. Um, So they're continuing to say Um, that there's some improprieties here and they want to hold some hearings to get answers to questions. Um, So what's the latest with that? Yeah, the the latest is that uh, Senator Bill Rabin, who's the chairman of the Rules Committee in the Senate, which obviously is a pretty powerful group, wants a joint committee uh, that's led by uh, Phil Berger and Tim Moore to uh, hold a formal hearing into into the pipeline deal and how it came together, and uh, his his main complaint is that uh, he believes that the Cooper administration is uh, not providing public documents to the legislature that they ought to be providing. Uh, he says, y'all are providing them to the media, but not to the legislature. That's not cool. And he noted that the legislature has subpoena powers uh, with these types of hearings. So um, obviously a subpoena allows you to either just force the production of documents that they want or force uh, individuals to come and testify under oath about, you know, various things related to the hearing. Uh, so it it's possible that, you know, maybe we'll see Cooper or some of his aides, uh, you know, brought before the legislature to, to testify about what went on with this pipeline uh, and this $58 million fund that the company behind it gave to the governor's office. Like you said, on the same day that they won the permanent approval, Obviously, we should note that the governor's office no longer has that $58 million. The legislature took it in a uh, law that they passed last month um, and said that, uh, no, we're going to spend it on schools instead of on the uh, original plan from the Cooper administration to spend it on some economic development and environmental mitigation issues along the pipeline. So uh, the money isn't really the question now. Now the focus is more on the process and how this was created and did anything improper happen along the way. So we'll see how that goes. WRAL got some records for a story they wrote about um, what the original drafts of the uh, the agreement with the pipeline and Cooper looked like, and that shed some light on it. Um, also, they um, interviewed Ken Udy, who's um, Cooper's aide, about and he answered some of their questions about how this came together, um, but Republicans say you know, he's he's not answering the question our questions that are similar or um, providing us with these. Yeah, these that records. that was one of uh, Senator Rabin's complaints was that uh, they had asked for those same documents that the governor's office gave to WRAL and uh, apparently have not yet given to the legislature. Um, and obviously involved in this also is uh, Lee Lilly. Uh, Cooper's uh, lobbyist who uh, formerly lobbied on behalf of the pipeline, uh, who was subject to uh, what some Democrats in the legislature termed an ambush a little while ago when uh, some of the Republican legislators wanted to get some questions about the pipeline from him. Uh, So uh, I'm sure we'll hear his name continuing to pop up. And uh, I, you know, I think this is going to be a story that uh, 
probably keeps on barreling down the road for a while here. Sure, yeah, and, and we don't know for sure that they're going to hold hearings, and Raven kind of indicated that if they get answers to some of their questions, they may not need to hold hearings. Yeah, um, that's exactly but. what he said. He said, is you know, we don't need to do any of this if the governor's office just cooperates. Uh, the governor's office, uh, in a statement from Christy Jones, said that they're happy to help, uh, but, you know, didn't uh, say anything about, you know, whether or not they had or planned to give these documents. So uh, right now it's just kind of a war of words. Obviously the legislature isn't planning to be back until May, uh, so we've got some time for, you know, things to happen between now and then. The um, Lauren, the, uh, an official from DEQ also had some things to say about how the permit came together um, and the connection uh, with between the permit and the pipeline fund. So um, what was said there? Yeah, so Sheila Holman, who's an assistant secretary with DEQ, uh, was present at a uh, joint legislative uh, meeting on energy policy earlier this week. And you know, she was basically just giving an update on, you know, what the pipeline is, how they were permitted and all that. And afterwards, of course, lawmakers questioned her about the process even more. Um, and, you know, one of the questions was, you know, when did you know about this memorandum of understanding? And she was very clear in the fact that she didn't know it was, you know, in existence until about January. That's when she first saw it. Um, and so that was after the permits had been issued. And, you know, she said, you know, that that MOU or this agreement didn't alter or play a role in their work. And, um, and while DEQ had been giving Governor Cooper's office periodic updates to keep them involved so there weren't any surprises, she said, uh, Cooper's office didn't play a role in any way, shape, or form, or they didn't tell them, you know, permit this, permit that, et cetera. Um, and, you know, one of the big questions that has been floating around is, you know, since this money is now going to schools or will be going to school shortly once the bill becomes a law, I think next week, uh, what happens to the money? Where Will that then impact the permits? And she said, you know, if we don't get that voluntary money, that $58 million, that's not going to impact the permits. They're not going to revoke the permits just because they don't have that extra money on top of the $6 million they already have for some mitigation projects. Um, so she was very clear in the fact that DEQ, or at least her portion of DEQ, didn't know about the MOU, and so it didn't play a role into what they were doing. Uh, you also wrote a story about body cams this week, and um, this was interesting because there's been not, there's a new a law that's been on the book for a little more than a year uh, that regulates how body cam footage gets released or shown to people. Mm-hmm. And um, so, how are people saying that this is working at this point? Uh, so, the people who were involved in getting the bill passed, you know, Representative John Faircloth, a Republican from Guilford County, and some people from the Sheriff's Association, they think the bill's working great. Um, because we see it in the media mostly as, you know, we people can petition a judge to get the video uh, footage released if they're not in the footage. So if you're a subject or an individual who's in the footage and something happens, you have a right to see it, but a police department can say, no, we're not going to disclose that to you right now. But so the people who wrote the bill think it's going really well because we're seeing all these cases where people are petitioning the court to get footage and eventually the judge does decide then that the footage can be released for various other reasons. But there are other cases um, where it doesn't get released for, you know, some instances. I think one recently was because the ADA said that they were still, they hadn't finished uh, the district attorney's investigation into the situation. Um, 
so that that's really good. They said, I mean, Eddie Caldwell, who's a representative from the North Carolina Sheriff's Association, said that it was one of the best written bills that he's ever seen and that has, you know, translated to it working really well for law enforcement officers. He hasn't heard any complaints. Faircloth hasn't heard any complaints. But they are working to update it a little bit because there was some confusion about who in a municipal government can view the footage without a judge's petition because uh, some were saying – you know, a county, ma- a city manager couldn't view the footage, even though technically he or she oversees the police department. And so then instead it would just go to the, pol- the police chief, etc. cetera. Um, but there are some big issues from other people. So I know the, AC- the North Carolina ACLU has been very vocal in the fact that this law is very restrictive for some people. Um, especially when it comes to use of force. And we're going to see that a lot this week, or we have seen it a couple times this week because there's a case down in Asheville where um, a black man was jaywalking and was stopped by police, and the police beat him, used a stun gun on him, choked him. Um, And we didn't – that happened, I want to say, in August of last year. And we didn't find out until a couple weeks ago, and there had been some internal investigations. But the officer in question wasn't arrested, I tell him, think, earlier this morning. So had it not been for someone leaking that footage to the Asheville Citizen Times, we would not have known about it. And you know, the ACL, the North Carolina ACLU, you know, said that's a really good example of why we would need to release, you know, use of force videos because the public deserves to know that these things are happening, um, and because of the law, we don't get to know what's happening. So is it possible that uh, people could have requested and gotten this footage, except nobody knew about it? Yeah, no, yeah, they could have requested had they known that yeah. the event happened. But someone tipped off a reporter in Asheville, and then the video got leaked to the newspaper, and that's how we know about it. Mm-hmm. And so some of the people you talked to said that um, this is creating more consistency because it used to be that police basically decided whether to release these, and now it's a judge that mm-hmm. has to sign off on it. Um, but that does add another layer of, of approval, and a police department can't just give it to you. Um, so um, uh, what did the expert that you talked to at the School of Government say about how this is going? Yeah, Jeff Welty, a professor at the School of Government, said that that has created consistency because former, you know, before police departments could classify body camera footage as, you know, a personnel record, an investigative record, a public record. So that created a lot of confusion. Um, I know as a former crime reporter, it was hard to get that footage from anyone because we didn't really know what it was. So if it was a personnel record, we couldn't get it at all. Uh, So because of the rules set out in this bill, it laid out a clear way for someone to request the footage, not just a journalist, but any you know, citizen, any advocate, they could go ahead and have a clear pathway to request it. And it is it is time consuming. People have complained about, you know, not necessarily being able to understand the judicial system and be able to work the courts in a way to get the footage released. But, you know, Welty did say that bringing a judge in as kind of a third party, you know, neutral overseer of the footage has helped in most cases. All right, um, Andy, uh, bring us up to speed on Dwayne Hall. So I think we talked about last week about uh, how he had been accused by several women in a North Carolina Policy Watch article um, of sexual misconduct uh, of various forms and um, that he had denied this. Um, This week he's really pushing back hard at Policy Watch, um, accusing them of essentially conflicts of interest and not disclosing those. 
uh, and saying that they're even in violation of uh, the rules that are supposed to uh, hand deal with their nonprofit status. Um, so what is, what is Hall saying and what does Policy Watch uh, say? So you're right. Um, we didn't hear much from Dwayne last week except for when he apparently spoke to one of our uh, opinion columnists defending his actions. Um, late Sunday night, he got in touch with a writer for WNC, Jeff Tabiri, uh, and in that, and he, I guess, gave him a statement in, in an interview. Uh, and in that, he pointed out that the North Carolina Justice Center failed to disclose that one of its um, employees is his ex-girlfriend, uh, Megan Glazier. And so in that statement to uh, WNC, uh, he suggested that um, – they had ulterior motives for publishing this story. Uh, 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 he, again, denied all the claims, uh, but uh, sort of pivoted away from the claims themselves and tried to um, point the attention on Policy Watch. And so uh, what does this have to do with their uh, – well, first of all, what did, what did Policy Watch say in response to this? They considered disclosing this, right? Right. They, uh, their editor, uh, Rob Schofield – I think I'm pronounce, pronouncing his name right, uh, said that he thought it was the moral thing to do to uh, leave that relationship uh, undisclosed because she had, in his words, nothing to do with their reporting. So he said he thought it would be a distraction to mention her at all, and that's what their response was after Hall's statement this uh, earlier this week, that uh, Hall is trying to distract from the real issue, which is that um, – at least, what is it now, two, two women were inappropriately kissed, and there are several witnesses, some named, some unnamed, um, who have spoken to uh, Policy Watch and us in a couple cases um, that are claiming that he acted inappropriately. So this kind of keeps going back and forth because then he came back later in the week, Hall did, and um, started talking about Policy Watch's um, nonprofit status. He put out a whole statement about this. That's right. He said uh, he questioned why a uh, nonprofit advocacy group, which the Justice Center is and Policy Watch is an arm of, um, why they spent so much time tracking down claims against him. He said, you know, Policy Watch's mission statement is to advocate – I forget the exact wording, but to advocate for um, issues that relate to poverty. And so Hall pointed out, you know, why – Policy Watch writer Billy Ball said that he had worked, worked on this story for close to a year or about a year. And Hall said, well, why are you why, – why are they looking into me for an entire year? Um, and so uh, Policy Watch again just said, you know, we are trying to uh, hold people accountable – um, they sort of just responded by saying you, they stand by their reporting. Um, so that, that's where we are now. Um, since then, other legislators have come out, people like, um, oh, gosh, I forget their names off the top of my head. But a couple, do you remember? Carla Cunningham. Carla Cunningham uh, th I think Verla Insko earlier this week. Chaz Beasley doubled down. Greg Meyer doubled down, and these are all um, Democrats in the state house, to say that they think Hall should go. Darren Jackson reiterated that, too. Um, yeah, Colin, you talked to a couple uh, legislators uh, about this this week. 
Yeah, so I talked to, uh, I went to one of the uh, legislative meetings where Dwayne Hall would, would have normally been there as a committee that he serves on that met this past week. Uh, he did not show up, I guess not terribly surprisingly to that meeting. Uh, but Darren Jackson, the House Democratic leader, was there, as was the uh, Senate Democratic leader, Dan Blue, and I talked to both of them. Uh, I asked Darren Jackson a bit about um, his calls for Hall to resign and what exactly is the next step, because obviously Hall has said he's not going to resign. Uh, he wants the voters to decide on his future in the primary and in the general election. So I asked all, uh, Jackson if he's planning to do anything else, and he said there's really not much to do, that the caucus doesn't really have a process for taking any sort of disciplinary action against Hall, uh, that the next step for someone wanting to get him removed from office would be to file a complaint with the Legislative Ethics Commission, and that's typically a complaint that's filed by the person making the accusations who says, this lawmaker did X to me. Um, uh, so far, that has not happened. Uh, Jackson said he's not aware of any such complaint. He himself said he personally will not be filing one. Um, I think the question would be, uh, who would even file that? Because uh, we have essentially one named accuser in this case. She has since relocated to Florida. Unclear if she would file that. Uh, and then the other accusers have uh, sought to remain anonymous. And you can't make an anonymous complaint with the Ethics Commission. It has to be signed and notarized. Uh, and so those folks might be unwilling to, to take that step. And some people are saying that should be changed, right? Yeah, there, there's a number of calls for change. In fact, from Darren Jackson, who I talked to, uh, saying that he'd like to see uh, a, a more confidential process available for uh, people who uh, have these types of complaints that some sort of third party could investigate. Uh, Lauren wrote about this a couple months back, and there's processes in other states. Uh, New York State, I think, is probably the, the strongest example where they have a, a third party investigator uh, who's specifically there to handle these sort of things and then make recommendations and uh, findings to their legislative ethics commission. Uh, and that's something that we don't have here. Um, there are calls for more uh, sexual harassment training, which I understand is in the works from uh, Paul Coble, the legislative services officer. Um, but all that, we don't know exactly what that's going to look like, when it's going to roll out, um, who's going to be uh, subject to that, uh, but we, we should know something soon. Uh, I'll mention also when I talked to Dan Blue, uh, he was the first lawmaker I talked to who was sort of uh, noncommittal about Hall's future. He said he hadn't had much time to review the allegations, so he doesn't really know what should or should not happen with Hall and didn't really have a statement to make about uh, resignation, which I thought was interesting because several folks in his caucus, including uh, Mike Woodard and Terry Van Dyne, among others, have uh, specifically called for Hall's resignation along with a, a number of other prominent Democrats. Um, but Dan Blue stopping short of uh, making that call this week himself. Did you mention that the Women's Caucus um, is asking for changes to the process? Uh, it looked like they had read your story, Lauren, and found the holes in uh, the reporting process. Yeah, so I mean, right now the reporting process is kind of difficult for staff members. I mean, you have to, I think on the House side specifically, it is very difficult. It can take over 100 days for someone to report harassment and it go through the entire process until it's not necessarily arbitrated, but they come to a conclusion. Um, and, it, and it's very time consuming. I mean, you have to wait like 10 days and then 15 days, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so what the Legislative Women's Caucus really did was point out that maybe we need um, a third party neutral investigator because, you know, anyone who's harassed in the General Assembly has to report it to their supervisor. A lot of cases, that's Speaker Moore or Senator Phil Berger or uh, Legislative Services Officer Paul Coble. So those People are who are very powerful. Very powerful men. Uh, so they, they want to take that away and bring in an independent investigator 
which would be easier for people to deal with. And there are uh, state government, state legislatures that have that already specifically. Uh, the New York State Assembly has a really good process, um, and I don't remember the details like off the top of my head, but they do have that independent uh, investigator who can go in and help figure out, you know, who the, the details of the claims. So, Andy, uh, one other thing before we leave Dwayne Hall. Um, People uh, are also calling his campaign donors. Um, so what are they trying to accomplish with this? That's right. One of the um, groups that's sort of leading the charge to hold Hall accountable and have him resign is the Young Democrats of North Carolina. And it's a branch of the North Carolina Democratic Party, which has already called for Hall to resign. Uh, but they uh, launched this campaign where they're calling every single donor to Dwayne Hall at least the big ones that are mentioned. You know, there are some in the campaign finance reports that are so small, there's no name attached. But the big ones, uh, they're calling and asking to make a matching donation to the North Carolina Women's I forget the exact name. I'll have to pull it up. I think it's something like North Carolina Women United. United, United yeah, uh, which advocates for, obviously, uh, equal rights for women uh, and uh, women's issues, especially in the healthcare realm. Um, and, uh, you know, there's some recognizable names in his list of donors. Uh, uh, one of the biggest was Greg Hatem, who is a developer downtown who owns Empire Eats, Empire Eats owns City, uh, Raleigh Times, Morning Times, um, The Pit, and the Warehouse District. And then people like former NC State basketball player Chris Corciani, he's in there, uh, as well as uh, Stephen Malik, I think is how you pronounce his name. He owns... Uh, North Carolina FC, formerly known as the Railhawks, uh, the soccer club that is trying to bring and become an MLS franchise. And Malik, we reached out to all of those guys, and Malik's the only one who got back to us and essentially said, you know what, uh, allegations are troubling, but I, he believes in due process and he's going to support them until um, things are proven. But that's where we are. Uh, they're ramping up the pressure, at least the young Democrats are. Um, their president is a young woman, uh, and so is their uh, organizer and communications person. They care deeply about this. And um, I've seen a couple people like Charlie Reese out in Durham sort of, um, you know, cheering them on and saying, you know, lead, for, you know, lead in what you're doing. And we'll see where that goes. But um, we haven't heard much from Hall since, his, since Hall's statement about uh, Policy Watch potentially violating its nonprofit status, which Jonathan Jones, uh, a media ethics person over at uh, Elon University, um, told us they're, they're probably not in breach of. Um, we haven't heard much since. So that's where we are. Young Dems calling Hall's donors. Uh, Hall hasn't said anything since he accused Policy Watch of um, breaching its nonprofit status. The board for the Justice Center met on Thursday, and Ann McCall, the chairwoman, uh, told me this morning, this is Friday morning, that uh, not to expect anything. Uh, don't expect any big retractions or um, corrections or any movement. They support Policy Watch, and so that's where we are. Something else you wrote this week, uh, you checked a claim uh, for uh, PolitiFact. Uh, and maybe it was last week, actually, but uh, of Pricey Harrison, who's a House Democrat uh, from Greensboro. 
And um, she made a claim about the number of guns in the United States and the world um, that uh, we thought was interesting. So you checked it out. So what did you find? Obviously, yeah, there's a lot of uh, hot takes about guns after the shooting in Florida. One of them from Larry Pittman. Uh, some of our uh, listeners may know about him. He said that a lot of the shooters turn out to be, quote, communist Democrats. PolitiFact found that uh, to be pants on fire. Uh, but then we saw a tweet from Pricey Harrison, uh, a Democrat from Greensboro, who tweeted that the United States, she's trying to raise awareness about the gun culture in America. She said the United States is 5% of the world's population, but it has 42% of the privately owned, like, civilian guns, which, to PolitiFact, seemed like a very high percentage, and so we wanted to look into it. Uh, what we found was that there are very, very few organizations that conduct comprehensive research into civilian-owned guns. They're very hard to track. Uh, different countries have different rules for how they, you know, register guns, license them, things like that. Um, also, there are a lot of un- gr- guns that are underground, um, you know, that aren't you know, sold at pawn shops or whatever. Um, and even in the United States, I mean, nobody's keeping a big reg- registry database of right. all the guns and how many people have guns and that right. kind of thing. So. But uh, the most recent reports we have are about 10 years old. Uh, it was done by the Small Arms Survey, which is fun- which is in Geneva, Switzerland, and uh, they uh, get some funding from various countries. Um, and their last survey, their comprehensive uh, report, was in 2007, and they found that uh, – the United States is about 42%. Uh, it's a little squishy just because of all that uncertainty, um, but we rated Harrison's, uh, her claim, mostly true uh, because, uh, you know, from what we can tell, it's about that number. And experts said the same thing. They said, you know, generally it's hard to find out, but the range they've seen is between, is around 40, 42%. Okay. Uh, Will, you looked into uh, North Carolina's gun laws this week and um, compiled something that will be, I think, really helpful for people who um, kind of want to know where we are right now, especially if they think there is any change um, that needs to be made. Um, so did anything stand out? Some of the things you reported were, um, you know, were not surprising about uh, uh, gun laws, but some of them um, were, were pretty interesting. What, what surprised you? Yeah, I think it's uh, not really been a surprise that ever since 2011, when uh, Republicans took control of the state legislature, that we've had kind of a loosening of gun laws or a strengthening of gun rights. Uh, you could call it either way, depending on you know kind of your own personal opinions on that topic. Um, but if you look into some of the specifics, uh, there are some cases where, yes, we do have some of uh, the loosest regulations in the country, but there are also some cases where we have some of the strictest regulations in the country. Um, One of the issues where we're kind of seen as a national model almost on gun control is uh, how we regulate private sales of pistols. So say that you want to buy a handgun from your coworker or from your uncle or from a guy at a gun show who's not a federally licensed dealer. Most states just kind of allow that sale to happen. Um, But North Carolina requires that you have a permit in order to buy that gun. And to get a permit, you have to pass a background check. Um, And so we are actually one of the few states that requires background checks for these private sales of pistols. We don't require uh, them for private sales of long guns, like rifles and shotguns, uh, but we do require them for pistols. And that uh, puts us among a very small number of states with that rule. Um, 
we are also uh, one of a small number of states uh, that requires uh, when people uh, have a domestic violence restraining order taken out against them, um, if the allegations involve guns, say, you know, the person, uh, you know, threatens to shoot their partner or shoot the children or something like that, or uh, I think also threatens to, you know, commit suicide if they don't bring the children back, you know, something involving guns and violence, then the court is actually required to make that person surrender their guns. Um, Most states kind of leave it up to the judge's discretion, say, if these domestic violence issues in this restraining order involve guns, you judge can decide whether or not you know, you've, you've got the option. Uh, but North Carolina is one of uh, just, a, I think, fewer than 10 states that says, no, that person has to if that's part of the restraining order that the judge grants. Um, that leads to some constitutional questions. Uh, I talked to a professor at uh, Campbell Law School, uh, Greg Wallace, who said that, uh, you know, there's some restraining orders called ex parte orders that can be granted uh, without the accused person even having the chance first to kind of defend themselves. Uh, those happen in uh, really bad situations, which, uh, you know, the, the law has decided that it's okay to do this on a temporary basis and kind of cut out that due process step. Um, there's some, obviously, you know, constitutional questions on, you know, ordering someone to turn over all of their guns, even if it ends up just being temporarily, without getting the chance to defend themselves. Uh, but people who support this law say, well, most of the women killed in the United States are killed by either current or former partners. And most of them who are killed, the vast majority of them who are killed by those partners are killed using guns. So, you know, the fact that we have these strong domestic violence laws, even if it might, you know, infringe on, you know, some due process, even in, you know, if it's only for 10 days are worth it in order to save lives. So there's that debate that you have going on. Which, of course, is, is also going on in the White House. Uh, Which is going on in the White House. first or take the guns first. Right, right. Um, and so uh, we are, I guess, I, I don't know if Trump was talking about us when he said take the guns first and do due process second, uh, but, uh, but who knows. But uh, we also, I should add a caveat to that. Um, one way in that law that we're not as strict is that we don't allow police to actually go into the person's house and take the guns. Uh, when the person is ordered to give up the guns, they're just supposed to surrender them. So say that, uh, you know, the person threatened to use a pistol against the partner, pointed a pistol at her, said, you know, I'm going to kill you. So the person gets a restraining order and turns in the pistol. But if this accused abuser has, you know, four other guns that he doesn't turn in, the government doesn't necessarily know that he's got all those guns and can't necessarily force him to turn those in. Obviously, if it later came out that he didn't turn in all of his guns, he would be in contempt of court and could be arrested for that, and there would be other legal problems. But there's, you know, there's no uh, guarantee that, you know, the person is necessarily turning in all the guns. So that is kind of a loophole that uh, some some domestic violence uh, you know, activists have pointed to as being something that we should probably strengthen. So what are the ways in which North Carolina has actually loosened its uh, gun laws? A lot of ways around uh, carrying guns, both open carry and concealed carry. Um, You can uh, carry concealed weapons at parks, uh, say if you're going running on a greenway and you're scared of possibly being attacked, you can carry a gun with you there. Uh, You can carry guns into bars um, as long as the bar doesn't specifically 
prohibit it. Um, we do allow bars and restaurants to say, no, don't bring your weapons in here. But if they don't specifically say no, you can bring it in as long as it stays concealed the whole time and you don't have anything to drink. Um, obviously, if you are drinking, you can't have a weapon. Um, that is pretty uh, pretty standard across the board. We also are pretty uh, loose on uh, what's called reciprocity for concealed carry. If you have a concealed carry permit from any other state in the country, you can also carry concealed in North Carolina. Um, and you know, some states have stronger restrictions than we do for getting those permits. Some states have weaker restrictions. Uh, but we and so, for instance, only 36 states. Uh, have reciprocity with North Carolina. If you get a permit here, there's some states that you can't carry a concealed weapon in. Uh, but we say if you got a permit anywhere else, you can carry concealed here as well. And we also recently have allowed uh, the carrying of guns at like highway rest stops and things like that. Um, you can also, uh, obviously you can't have guns inside of schools, uh, but you are allowed to have a gun in a school parking lot as long as it remains locked and out of sight inside of your car. Um, so, and like I said, those are areas where we are uh, uh, kind of more uh, pro-gun rights than some other states. And we also have some uh, some looser rules on uh, what are called NFAs, which is a permit that you have to get if you want to buy like a machine gun or a suppressor or something like that. Um, a lot of states allow local sheriffs to deny someone that permit. Uh, for instance, uh, here in Wake County, Sheriff Donnie Harrison used to say, no, I don't want you to have a machine gun. I'm, you know, I'm not going to do that. He was and quoted are, in a WRAL sort of like, article about th that. These are a step beyond the kind of AR-15s and other semi-automatic weapons that we hear a lot about. These are actual, like, Tommy guns, right? Or, right, or, automatic or, weapons. Um, technically, they're defined as weapons of mass destruction. So you have automatic weapons, you have sawed-off shotguns, you have suppressors and silencers, you have um, shoulder stocks for pistols, uh, things that uh, are typically viewed as being more dangerous than your average weapon. But you can still buy them if you pass this national uh, this national permit called an NFA, a National Firearms Act permit. Um, and we changed the law saying that sheriffs have to approve those permit applications as, as long as the person obviously isn't legally barred from having a gun. All right. Uh, and uh, last thing, we actually had a poll recently um, that we came out with this week. Uh, that we had Elon, where the NNO had uh, Elon University conduct a poll of teachers. Uh, there's been a lot of talk lately, both um, from President Trump on down uh, to Larry Pittman in the state house and others, uh, talking about arming teachers and um, whether we should do that. And um, so we polled teachers, and it wasn't a huge surprise. I mean, most of the teachers who've spoken out against this, uh, spoken out on this, have been uh, against the idea. Um, but what did the poll show? Yeah, the poll showed that I think teachers are more opposed to teachers having guns than the general public is. If you look at national polls or even some statewide polls, it shows typically around 60% of people oppose arming teachers and 40% of people are either for it or kind of undecided. Um, and But if you look at teachers specifically, you have around 80% are opposed to it. And the other 20% are either for it or are, you know, haven't made up their minds, they're undecided. Um, so it's, you know, it, in the general public, there's even a little bit more uh, support for arming teachers than there is among actual teachers. Um, what was interesting to me was that there, was, there were a decent percentage of teachers, probably less than 10%, but 5 or 6% of teachers in this poll that we found, who said that they don't think it's a good idea, but that they 
would be open to carrying guns if it were an option. So I, I wasn't really sure. Uh, so I don't that want that. Is. I don't want that teacher right. down the hall, that crazy teacher down the hall, to have one. But if he has one, I won't. Right, exactly, okay. something like that. Or, okay. or it could be, you know, well, I don't think it's a good idea, and I wouldn't personally do it. But if you know, we were only going, you know, if there was someone on staff who is comfortable with weapons, um, you know, I don't think it's a good idea. But you know, if they're going to do it, sure, fine, whatever. Um, give it to that person. So th- there was a small segment who seemed like they might kind of be. Um, I don't know if resigned to it is the right word, but uh, but either way, it was, uh, yeah, in all the questions we asked, it was pretty much uh, uh, about four out of five teachers didn't like it, didn't think it was a good idea. Um, a lot of people raised concerns that, uh, you know, here in North Carolina, most of the students in our public schools are minorities, and about 80% of the teachers are white, and they thought that there might be some uh, racial issues, obviously, uh, we've seen plenty of problems in this country with uh, armed, you know, authority figures killing uh, unarmed black people, um, and they think that that's going to be a problem if we go ahead and arm uh, teachers as well. I don't think anyone, uh, you know, thinks teachers uh, really want to kill their students, <laughs> but, you, you know, you never know what will happen. All right. Uh, let's take a break and come right back with Headliner of the Week. Please stay with us. I'm a retired school psychologist and helping people was my thing. After my stroke, when Meals on Wheels started, I was on the other end of the stick, so to speak. My name is Julius Gaines, creative writer, poet, photographer. One in six seniors faces the threat of hunger, and millions more live in isolation. Drop off a hot meal and say a quick hello. Volunteer for Meals on Wheels by donating your lunch break at americaletsdolunch.org. This message brought to you by Meals on Wheels America and the Ad Council. Headliner of the week. 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 Who's hot? And welcome back to everybody's favorite segment, it's time for Headliner of the Week. Will Doran, who's your headliner? Um, I'll go with Booze Cruises. Um, I don't think that showed up in an actual headline, uh, <laughs> but we're a little less formal here on Domecast. Um, the state is uh, looking into serving passengers on the new ferry out in the Outer Banks alcohol, uh, beer and wine. I don't think that you can get liquor under the rules they that they're talking about. They specifically said no wine. pina coladas. Right, no pina coladas. Uh, but you could get caught in the rain. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, no, it's, it's interesting. You know, you're seeing recently kind of a you know, more liberal alcohol laws coming in. Obviously, we had the brunch bill passed recently. Uh, we've had, you know, push for kind of opening up the, the craft beer distribution system. Every once in a while, you hear people talk about, uh, you know, getting rid of state control of the ABC system. Uh, so it's a, it's a slow burn, uh, but I think this is probably just one more uh, notch in the belt for uh, more libertarian uh interests in our state's alcohol rules. And from what I understand, this hasn't happened yet. Um, it's a right. proposal, but right. um, if it does happen, it would not apply to the car ferries. So you couldn't uh, drive onto a ferry, go get some beer, come back to your car, just to be... The, exactly. the process of getting your car off of those ferries is rather complicated. So if you had a bunch of drunks doing it, I feel like you could have like a 10-car pileup before you even off the boat. Although some of those counties could really make some money if they just put a checkpoint right at the ramp. Oh, yeah. I mean... Hyde County, like, they probably could use some more revenue, and this would 
certainly do it for them. So, okay, but this is for the new uh, passenger ferry that's exactly going to be coming. Yeah, uh, between, yeah, very very snazzy designs of it that we've seen. Uh, looks cool. You know, have to go check it out. Uh, have a nice little glass of wine with my sunset ferry ride and feel all fancy in the brand new ferry. <laughs> all right. How long is that ride? You know. I have no idea. 70 okay. minutes. So you can, 70 you can, minutes. You can maybe okay. fit in more than one glass of wine. <laughs> right. Oh, I can fit in three or four. <laughs> <laughs> Check right. out Will's next beer column in a few months. <laughs> yeah. All right, Booze Cruises in the hat for headliner of the week. All right, Lauren Horsch, who's your headliner? I'm going to go with um, socks, or specifically, no socks. Um, A friend of the pod, Tim Buckland, a reporter down at the Wilmington Star News, recently polled uh, the lawmakers from his part of the the state and some of our federal politicians as well about why they might not wear socks. Um, If you've been around the legislature or follow North Carolina politics at all, you'll know that some of our lawmakers really don't wear them. They don't wear socks. so Tim took it upon himself to talk to some of the people about it or why they would do that. Uh, so it was very interesting to see, you know, who does and who doesn't. And one of the big ones was, um, well, obviously, Senator Richard Burr. He's well known for not wearing socks. Um, but one I didn't know about, and I very much pay attention to people's ho- hosiery, hosiery um, was Senator Michael Lee, uh, the, uh, the Republican senator from New Hanover County, Um, And we actually chose this as one of the insider um, quotes of the day. Um, So he was talking about, you know, he'll be in a meeting and all of a sudden he'll cross his leg and his pant leg will come up a little bit. And lo and behold, (laughs) he's not wearing socks. And this is what he said to uh, Tim. They're like, did he forget to wear his socks? Did he forget to pack socks? Doesn't he know it's cold outside? So I just thought that was a very good quote that uh, uh, Tim Buckland got from Senator Lee. So. No socks, right there in the headliner. These are non-natives of the South probably who would be stunned at the uh, lack of I, socks. I always wear socks unless I'm wearing, like, uh, ballet flats. But, uh, yeah, no, socks always. <laughs> You're pro socks. Okay, uh, some lawmakers who are not pro socks are in the hat for headliner of the week. Andy Spay, who's your headliner of the week? My headliner is barbecue, specifically that stupid, vile Brooklyn barbecue that someone put in a blog that I think is now deceased, which explains a lot. Uh, yeah, uh, Munchies, at the beginning of this week, I think it was Sunday, uh, they had this picture of prison food or uh, the, and a headline that said, Brooklyn barbecue is taking over the world. And myself, like many of our native nor- Southerners and Texans and North Carolinians thought, how dare they? How dare you, New York? We don't come up there and tell you how to make bagels or whatever the heck you guys make or whatever. Like, I I just can't believe. And so it's not just me that was offended. It was lawmakers. I think Mark Meadows called that story fake news. Uh, Tom Tillis called it, uh, he called on a fact check and said it's not real barbecue. Phil Berger and Tim Moore called on, uh, I think, the governor, Roy Cooper, to um, issue a statement. Uh, What was their wording? Lauren tweeted it. It was Uh, like a bipartisan call to defend North Carolina barbecue or something like that. All of our politicians publicly shamed this writer and this story uh, for what it was, which was absolute garbage. It was that trash emoji. It was terrible. 
But it got us a lot of clicks when we wrote about it, so that was good. Um, so in that vein, uh, I'll say that uh, the Brooklyn Barbecue uh, BS is my uh, headline of the week. It's, it's funny because uh, all of the sports reporters from North Carolina are currently up in Brooklyn yeah. and sampling some of the Brooklyn barbecue. So I think you should go on the News and Observer's website and look at Steve Wiseman's story. And about they say it was pretty Brooklyn good. Bar- My boyfriend, who's a sports reporter for a different newspaper, actually went to the, the Feta Sour or whatever the restaurant was and tried it. And he was very sad to announce that it was good. Yeah, this whole thing got me a craving. And I ended up like going to Smithfield's Chicken and Barbecue at like 8 p.m. on a Sunday night to uh, avail myself of a craving for real barbecue. Well, there's nothing wrong with doing that ever. But... <laughs> But the actual pictures that came out of some of the stories that uh, North Carolinians have written after discovering this uh, barbecue outpost actually make it look a little more appetizing than that crap that they put on the uh, plate in the picture. Right. And and if you go to our website and look up Drew Jackson's story about um, just how all this came about, you'll see that that blog was like three years old. Somehow it got unearthed and uh, that there are a couple places up there that are doing whole hog whole hog pit barbecue and seem to be doing it right which you know good for them i oh i'm flattered uh, quite frankly <laughs> on behalf but, of north carolina but you're flattered. uh that writer should be ashamed of himself and i will say this to other new yorkers y'all need to tread lightly because i heard what that syracuse fan said during the national anthem when they played carolina and i'm not a carolina fan by any means i'm a duke fan but I was offended that the night that y'all play Carolina at the same day that Woody Durham died, may he rest in peace, that y'all have the gall to say crap like that. I'm getting mad, as you can tell. <laughs> y'all better stay up there. <laughs> Two strikes. One more, and we're coming up there. Andy's auditioning for his new role as a talk radio host. We'll try it. Huh. Anyway, thus ends my rant. <laughs> this is like a reality show in the making. Um, and also, Colin, this was an excuse for um, you and Stakeums to converse by Twitter. Yeah, this was a surprising <laughs> development in this whole thing was that uh, I was tweeting out um, Drew Jackson's column on this, our food writer, uh, and he compared um, the meat on this plate, I won't even call it barbecue, on this uh, this Brooklyn photo to a, like a sad attempt at a Stakeum. Uh, Which I was not even familiar with. Actually. Yeah, yeah. freezer aisle uh, staple, but uh, they have a very active Twitter presence, I learned, uh, because Stakeum was very offended by this. Apparently, you can hurt the feelings of uh, frozen meat slices. I did not know this, but they were very quick to inform me this on Twitter when I quoted uh, Drew's column. Stakeum has a great like brand Twitter. It's no Moon Pie. Oh, moon Pie is the best. Shout out Moon Pie. <laughs> it's hilarious. All right, well, I don't see how anybody's going to beat that, but um, Colin Campbell, who's your headline? Well, while we're talking about things that may or may not be happening in Brooklyn this week, uh, my pick is sort of uh, conceptual in nature. Uh, Headline this week was uh, basketball diplomacy. Um, This is uh, an issue related to uh, the ongoing legal battle over the fate of the state's elections board. Um, We are still having legal wrangling between Governor Roy Cooper and the legislature over exactly what the makeup of the, le- uh, the elections board should be. And until that happens, we have no elections board. And as of the latest court action, uh, we actually have about a quarter of the county elections boards unable to take any action. So they can't set early voting schedules for the primary. Uh, they can't deal with any sort of election complaints. All of that 
uh, ends up having to get forwarded to a uh, superior court in Wake County. So they could be very busy very soon um, trying to figure out uh, when we can vote in May if this is not settled. Uh, so David Lewis, uh, who's basically uh, the House head of election uh, law issues in the uh, state legislature, uh, decided to uh, take a d different approach uh, to dealing with this legal issue with the governor. Um, and as the governor indicates he's going to be doing some more legal action, Lewis uh, is trying a different approach, which I'm terming basketball diplomacy. He sent a letter to Cooper this week um, suggesting that rather than go to court to solve this, that Cooper should just talk to the legislature and try to get them to agree to maybe some tweaks or changes to the law that they just passed that uh, addresses the nature of the bipartisan Board of Elections, which under the latest form that's supposed to take effect soon, uh, four Democrats, four Republicans, and one person who's not affiliated with either party, uh, all of them appointed by the governor. The governor wants to go back to the old system where the his party would have uh, three out of the five seats on the elections board, um, likely to end up in court unless uh, Cooper goes along with David Lewis's suggestion, which is that um, the two of them uh, get together and chat. And Lewis points out that it just so happens uh, that both of them happen to be in a certain stadium in Brooklyn this week watching the ACC basketball tournament. Uh, and so he's suggesting that uh, they get together and try to hash out their differences. So in his letter, he says, uh, I would invite you to discuss these issues with me while we cheer together for North Carolina's teams. We've all recently come together to defend our state's barbecue against Brooklyn imposters. Maybe bipartisanship will break out while UNC, NC State, and Duke show New Yorkers how college basketball is done as well. Um, no word yet from the governor if he plans to uh, meet with uh, Representative Lewis while they're up in Brooklyn, uh, but we'll see if, uh, if these uh, overtures uh, uh, turn out as well as the uh, efforts with uh, North Korea have lately. Do we know who Lewis uh, cheers for? I mean, obviously Cooper's a huge UNC fan. But yeah, I know uh, Lewis's district is home to Campbell University, well, which is not in the ACC. I think he, uh, he think he may be a big Campbell guy. Um, a fighting camel, huh? Yeah, but I, I saw him cheering on Twitter for um, UNC last night, so I think, particularly with State out of the tournament, I think he's, he's down to be a Tar Heel for the rest of the uh, week. Well, it's good to see that some of these things can uh, bring North Carolina's feuding leaders together, whether it's basketball, yeah. barbecue. I assume booze cruises may also bring them together, but yeah. uh, maybe in maybe unintended hosiery, ways. Yeah. Hosiery, hosiery choices. And only potentially well, on the political <laughs> side because uh, Roy Cooper really loves his basketball. He really loves the UNC. I'm not sure if uh, a legislator from the other party who he's been at odds with for a while approaching him uh, while he's trying to enjoy the game, he, he might not take too kindly to that, but uh, points to Lewis for, for at least trying. Can you imagine though if it worked? Like what they would have PR cred for years to come. Like, look, we ate barbie we broke barbecue together and watched. We broke basketball. some of those terrible, yeah. disgusting rolls together. That's right. <laughs> and we came up with solutions. You could take that to every corner of this state and win for years to come. I it you know it, I'm not surprised that someone suggested this. Kumbaya. All right. Uh, I'm gonna have to go with uh, uh, declaring Andy the winner for his uh, bravura performance there of um, a grieved North Carolinian. Um, that was really something. So um, <laughs> that means that barbecue uh, in North Carolina, whether you like Eastern or Western barbecue, is our headliner of the week. Uh, the answer is Eastern. Uh, <laughs> uh, so that's it for Domecast. Uh, for Lauren Horsch, Will Dorn, Colin Campbell, and Angry Andy Spay. <laughs> I'm Jordan Schrader. Catch us again next week. You've been listening to The Domecast, a production of the News and Observer and the Insider State Government News Service. You can keep up with the conversation by reading Under the Dome in the Daily Print Edition or online at newsobserver.com. 
The Insider is found online at ncinsider.com.